If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, this is the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. And do you notice how the Ten Commandments begin? What is the first thing God deals with? The first thing God deals with, the thing he gets started with, is his command for us to be very careful that there's no other God in our life but him. Now, why does he start there? I mean, why does he start there instead of murder? Right? I mean, if our society was listing Ten Commandments, what, what would be first on it? Now, he starts here. Why does he start here? This command, have no other gods but God, comes first because the most fundamental problem with humans is not that we break God's rules. You know, we sin. Now, that's definitely part of our problem. But there's something underneath our sin. There's something more fundamental than breaking God's rules. In other words, when we sin, when we violate God's rules, that is merely a symptom. So think about the rest of the Ten Commandments. When we dishonor God's name, or ignore the Sabbath, or dishonor our parents, or murder, or lust, or commit adultery or stealing or lying or coveting. When we do these things, they are symptoms of a more serious disease. Morality is definitely important, but morality isn't the whole story. The Bible, you see, begins with God creating all things out of the overflow of his love. In the beginning, God created the great expanses of the sea, the sky, and the land. And then what does he do? After he creates these expanses, he fills them. He fills the empty spaces with light and life, the sun and stars, fish and birds, trees and animals. And then finally, at the climax of it all, God creates the man and the woman in his image in order to fill all things with his image and his glory. This is the mission of God in a nutshell. To fill all things with his glory through his image-bearing royal representatives. So we humans were created by God to carry out responsibility. 
to have authority within creation and over creation, our fundamental problem is we turn that upside down. We give our hearts and our allegiance, our worship to forces and powers within creation itself. And the name for that is idolatry. And the result of idolatry is slavery and death. So it isn't just that humans do wrong things and therefore incur punishment. That's definitely true. But it's just part of the story. The larger story is when we give our hearts, our allegiance, our trust, our service to forces within creation, we hand over our power to these forces and those forces are more than happy to take that power and to usurp our responsibility and our calling and our vocation. We hand over our power and our authority to things which then spoil our lives and ravage God's beautiful creation and do their best to turn God's world into a living hell. So the Ten Commandments begin at the beginning. Idolatry, having any other God beside the one true living creator of all things. Our primary problem is not misbehavior that needs punishing. It's idolatry. That comes to expression in sin and results in slavery. Now we have a problem here. Because to contemporary people, the word idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down before statues. Shrines built around an image that people come to and make sacrifices to and worship. But is our society really not doing that? Are we really any different? Don't we have shrines? Whether they're office towers or spas or studios or gyms or stadiums or shopping districts or car dealerships or universities. Aren't these all shrines that we sacrifice things to? And we bring our our sacrifices to these shrines in hope to procure the blessing of the good life that those shrines offer us. What are the gods of beauty and power and money and achievement but these things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and our society? Make no mistake about it. The modern gym, the modern university, the modern office building is every bit as much a shrine as the weird stuff we study about in history. We might not physically kneel before these shrines, before the statue of Aphrodite, but don't many young women today, aren't they driven into depression and eating disorders by obsessive concerns over their body image? Don't they pay enormous sacrifices at these shrines to procure from these shrines the blessing of the good life? We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, don't we perform child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve higher places in business and gain more wealth and prestige? Again, this is a fundamental issue in our lives, according to the Bible, and you can see this in the Ten Commandments. When our problems begin 
It's when we give our hearts, our allegiance, our worship to forces and powers within creation, when we give our deep love and trust to these forces, and by doing this, we hand over our power to these forces who are only too happy to then gobble us up. That's idolatry. And the result is slavery and death. Now, of all the different gods we are tempted to serve, money is one of the most seductive. It is one of the most powerful of the gods in the world today. Jesus tells us this. Just listen to his word. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Nobody can serve two masters. You will either hate the first and love the second, or be devoted to the first and despise the second. You can't serve both God and wealth. In other words, it's impossible to serve two masters. And when Jesus wants to bring up the two masters, the example par excellence, he says money and him. Do you hear what our Lord is teaching us? Remember that idolatry is the ultimate sin that puts us outside the community of faith. Idols are dangerous. They steal our love and trust and service from God. And money has a particular power to capture us and put us in bondage. That's why Jesus warned his followers to watch out for all kinds of greed. And in his parables, he tells the story of a farmer, like we heard this morning at Incarnation, destroyed in the midst of his prosperity because he hoarded wealth and failed to be rich toward God. He tells parables of rich men sent to hell for their failure to get, let go of their wealth for the sake of their neighbor. He tells of eternal judgment declared on the basis of one's willingness to share with those in need. Now, all of these parables point in the same direction. Money wants your worship. But every bit of ourselves we give to stuff, we are snatching from our true king. And what is the cost of all this? What's the price we pay for the idol of money and stuff? Well, listen to what our Lord tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. People who want to be rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and dangerous lusts which drown people in devastation and destruction. Now, do you believe that? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Let me read it again and ask you, do you really believe this? People who want to be rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and dangerous lusts which drown people in devastation and destruction. Do you really believe that wanting to get, get rich is like swimming through shark-infested waters? Our Lord goes even further, though, in the next verse. In verse 10, he tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil that has caused some people to wander from the faith and impale themselves painfully with many griefs. What God is telling us here is that loving money wounds people. It woos us away from the faith and it wells up into all sorts of evils. Do you see? Our material possessions seduce us into trusting that they make us secure for the future. That they 
or what's giving us satisfaction and joy and significance. In the Bible, God tells us that material possessions pose possibly the preeminent threat to worshiping Jesus. When we worship money, money mauls us. Money becomes a spiritual power that too often uses us rather than the other way around. We call them possessions. And what we, what we should mean by that is they're things we possess. But it's a double entendre. It's things that possess us. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, and Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 22, and other places we're told that in the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus conquered the powers, it says, the powers of this world. And because we live in a sophisticated secular society that has convinced us and everyone else that we don't worship idols, we think that the powers no longer exist. Just because sex isn't named Aphrodite and has a little image doesn't mean America's not bowing at the idol of sex and just because we no longer call God mammon doesn't mean or money mammon doesn't mean money doesn't isn't one of the powers of the world but in first Peter and Ephesians and Colossians we're told that in his crucifixion and resurrection this is what Jesus was battling he was battling the powers and one of those is money so in other words in Jesus's life death and resurrection he deposed money he stripped it of its authority Mammon is judged. Its capacity, in the words of Jacques Ellul, its capacity and the length of its reign have been reduced, but it retains a strength greater than our own. It still has a terrible power. Now, when we give in to the temptation to dance in this love affair, this trust affair, this service, when we give this to money, it wrecks us. It consumes our energy and our efforts, and it remakes us into its own image. This is what the Bible says over and over. We become like what we worship. We worship greed. We become greedy. We worship consuming. We become consumers. You worship freedom in the American style and you become jealous for your own privacy to such a way that we now have books written about us in America called Bowling Alone. So when we worship the idol of money, it, it, it destroys us. In one of the most horrific passages of the Bible, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 24, God tells us that our worship of idols consumes not only our flocks and our herds, but our sons and our daughters. Idolatry always involves child sacrifice. So when we worship the idol of money, when our lives are oriented primarily toward earning, getting, keeping, we become deformed. We no longer are reflecting the image of Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth, but we begin to reflect the image of the God Mammon. And we become increasingly committed to lifestyles of abundance of possessions 
And this way of living falls far short of the life Jesus invites us to experience. Now, please don't hear me say that capitalism is bad. I'm not saying that. In and of itself, capitalism is not bad. There, you see, there are many types of capitalism. In a recently published book, Christianity and the New Spirit of Capitalism, Catherine Tanner argues that some significant change occurred in the 1970s when it comes to the type of capitalism that is in America today and is being exported from America around the world. One way that some scholars have outlined the change is to follow the famous and much debated analysis of Max Weber. Craig quoted him this morning in recognizing the importance of of Christianity and, and distinctive Christian virtues in, in getting capitalism started in the mid-18th century. That only Christianity, Weber argued, it was, was, that's the only kind of environment out of which capitalism could have come. And it was rooted in virtues of, of Christianity. But to recognize that in the beginning, the type of capitalism we had was a production-oriented capitalism. We now live in a consumer-oriented capitalism. And in the beginning, it was held and disciplined and oriented by the worldview and the virtues of Christianity. Do you think the worldview and virtues of Christianity are holding America today? Do you think they're holding and restraining and disciplining the capitalism that's spreading around the world today? No, they are not. Look at it this way. Up until the 20th century, most American homes were sites not only of consumption but of production. Even as late as 1850, six out of ten people in America worked on farms. They made most of their own tools. They built their own homes and barns. They constructed their furniture. They wove and sewed their clothes. They grew crops and animals, producing food and drink. They chopped wood and made candles to provide heat and light. In other words, the majority of what people needed, they produced themselves. Then came the Industrial Revolution. And everything changed. And it happened fast. As the factory system and mass production came to dominance over the space of decades, it displaced home production by cheaply producing a host of commodities that were once made at home. And it drove out cottage industry and it forced millions of people into wage labor. And from 1859 to 1899, the value of manufactured goods in the United States shot from 1.9 billion to $13 billion. And the factories of the US grew from 140,000 factories to 512,000 factories. And here's the fascinating fact. During that period, America began to produce more goods than the habits and values and means of the existing population could purchase. So what do you do? What do you do when overproduction becomes the rule? What do you do when there is more flour, more stoves, more harnesses, more tools, more clothes than the number of buyers and their habits will allow them to purchase? And take it one step further. What do you do when new products emerge for which people have no desire? For example, Henry P. Crowell of Quaker Oats 
built an automated mill in 1882. When he did that, most Americans ate meat and potatoes, not cereal for breakfast. So he had a problem. Another example of this overproduction, James Buchanan Duke, when he procured two Bonsack cigarette machines, he was immediately able to produce 240,000 more cigarettes a day than the entire U.S. market smoked in a day. So here you have Mr. Duke and Mr. Quaker Oats. Massive production, but not a market for it. In other words, our production-oriented capitalistic economy worked so well, it outran the, the American capability to consume those goods. So what do you do when there's a huge gap between production and consumption? Well, the momentum of industrial production is already built up, so cutting production is not feasible. Instead... What happened, and this was the game changer, the industries invented advertising. It's not the only thing, but it was critical. Through advertising, manufacturers pumped up consumption to increase demand to meet supply. And this required advertisers shift from advertising being primarily informational to advertising being educational. Advertisers began to teach Americans a new way of living. People had to move away from habits of strict thrift toward habits of ready spending. Max Weber documented this. He said, as we were moving from a mercantilist economy to a capitalist economy, one of the problems that they discovered was in a mercantilist economy, if you paid a farmer more per acre, he just farmed less acres. Because enough was enough. Because the culture was entirely different than the way we think now. The culture was, oh, I only have to do this much, and then all of my needs are met. The culture was primarily a culture of need-based economics. But advertising, massively efficient manufacturing, all of this changed, and so Americans began to learn a new way of life. And by trial and by error, the modern advertising machinery figured it out. And so by the time we got to 1996, for example, the average American was exposed to more than 3,000 sales messages daily. Can you imagine what it is today? Like if it was 3,096, like did they even have shoes in 1996? And this ocean of advertising that we swim in, it produces in us something new insatiability a version of insatiability that is entirely unique to modernity we live in a society that is awash in such economic techniques as planned obsolescence the nurture and idealization and constant encouragement of insatiability which is the deification of dissatisfaction. 
In other words, over the last 75 years, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. That we convert the buying and using of goods into rituals that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed and burned up and worn out and replaced and discarded. And we need that treadmill to go or we don't feel like we're alive. I guarantee you, if you got a windfall of money right now, if somebody gave you $10,000, or $100,000, whatever a windfall is to you in your economic class, I guarantee that the way that what your thoughts immediately turn to are very likely to be very different than what people would have immediately thought 150, 200 years ago. This is the ocean in which we swim. This is the toxic air we breathe. And it can so powerfully shape us and bend us our lives toward the idolatry of consumerism. Frederick Nietzsche perceptively wrote that as the West increasingly experienced the absence of God, it would replace God with money. He wrote, quote, what was once done for the love of God is now done for the love of money. Jesus warns people far more often about greed than he does about sex, yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of it. Do you, do you know that I, I think I, I've had, I, I, I guess every version of sexual brokenness I can imagine confessed to me over the years. I have never had anyone confess greed to me. Not once. I've been a pastor for 26 years in the wealthiest country in the history of humanity, and I've never had a person confess greed to me. Man, I've lived in godly places. (laughs) Jesus warns us about this. We should all begin with the working hypothesis, I've probably got a problem with greed. If greed is the ocean in which we modern Americans swim in, none of us should assume that there's no toxins in our body. So there are two questions we must ask. First, how can we recognize the idol of greed? And second, how do we escape its bondage? In in his book, Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters, Tim Keller gives a helpful little list of how to identify your idols. Number one, in the words of Archbishop William Temple, your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, here's a test. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts turn effortlessly to when nothing else is demanding your attention. What do you daydream of effortlessly? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Your God does. That's your God. Lovers of money or those who find themselves daydreaming and fantasizing about new ways to make money, new possessions to buy, and looking with jealousy on those who have more than they do. 
An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy and emotional and financial resources on it without giving it a second's thought. A second way to discern your heart's true love is to look at how you spend your money. Your money flows effortlessly toward your love. In fact, the mark of an idol is you spend too much money on it. Always has been. A third test. This is really helpful. A third test is to look at your uncontrollable emotions. Just like a fisherman looking for fish knows where to go, knows that when he sees the water roiling, look for your idols at the bottom of your most painful emotions, especially those that never seem to lift and drive you to do things you know are wrong. If you are an angry person, ask, is there something here too important to me? Something I must have at all costs? Do the same thing with strong fear, despair, and guilt. And ask yourself, am I scared because something in my life is being threatened that I find it is absolutely necessary to me living my life? Anxiety. Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What is greed? Well, when you read the whole context, Luke 11 and all of Luke 12, you see that for Jesus, greed is not only the love of money, it is the excessive anxiety about money. If money is your God, it occupies your worries. So let's look in the mirror And let's ask ourselves the kind of questions that the Christian owners of slaves in America prior to the Civil War should have been asking themselves. And let's ask the kind of questions that white South Africans should have been asking themselves in the 1980s. Now, we need to be careful here. Because when we're in the grip of money, it's a deceitful little God. It's got all kinds of ways of tricking us into not noticing that it's money, it's mammon that we're in the grip of. For example, Tim Keller points out, some people want lots of money to control things, to control their world and life. This kind of person doesn't spend a lot of money. They live very modestly. They keep it all safely saved and invested so that they can feel completely secure in the world. But make no mistake, they're in the grip of mammon. Others want money for the things it gives them, like social circles and beautiful gifts. These people spend their money in lavish ways. Some people want money because it gives them power over others. There's a hundred different sneaky little ways money can blind you so that you're sitting here thinking about the other people in the room that, that really need to be paying attention right now. Oh, look at her. She's wealthy. I wonder how she's feeling. Mammon is no respecter of socioeconomic status. The poor are every bit as much um, susceptible to the power of mammon as the rich are. Because this is the ocean we live in. The second question. Since we swim in an ocean of lavish consumerism... I mean, think about it. We're like fish swimming 
And the Chesapeake watershed totally destroyed by toxins. How can a fish not get those toxins in its body? That's the, that's the impossible question we have to be asking. How can we possibly avoid mammon, escape from its clutches? Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't only warn us about the idol of money. He gives us a way to escape it. If you have your Bible, find Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So Jesus tells us to do something. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then he tells us why we should do that thing. Because where your heart is, there your treasure is. Now too often we hear this and we actually hear the opposite. We think Jesus is saying, wherever your heart is, your treasure will be. We think Jesus is saying, your checkbook is the barometer of your love. Now, that's true. Absolutely true. I said it earlier. What are you spending your money on? These kinds of things. But that's not what he's saying in this verse. He's not saying your checkbook's a barometer. He's saying your checkbook is a thermostat. He starts out by saying, spend your money in this way, and your heart will go there. Spend your money in heavenly investments, and your heart will go to God's kingdom. See, in other words, he says your money, your use of money, is the thermostat that changes the temperature of your heart's love for God and his kingdom. He doesn't say your money's a barometer that indicates your heart. He says the way you're spending your money is putting your heart somewhere. In other words, in Matthew 6.21, Jesus stands before America like a doctor offering a prescription that can heal our idolatry. He stands before every socioeconomic grouping in this room. And he gives us a prescription. According to Jesus, when we invest in the kingdom, our hearts follow our investment. Which kingdom do you invest in? Because wherever you're investing your money... That is where your heart is going. If we invest in earthly treasures, our hearts will be in earthly treasures. In other words, as one of Craig's doctoral students says, giving, giving has the potential to jam a spoke in the relentless wheel of idolatry. Giving has the potential to cast down money from the throne of our hearts. When we release our grip on money, we free up our hearts for worship and our hands for work in God's kingdom. When we give, the Spirit inhabits our generosity and works to reshape us into the image of a generous God instead of a stingy God named Mammon. Through giving, God changes your heart. And that always happens. And you give your money to something. And whatever you're giving your money to, that thing is changing your heart. A few minutes ago, I quoted the statistic that from 1968 to 2001, U.S. per capita incomes doubled. During that same time, do you know that the average church member's giving fell? From 3.1% to 2.66% of their total income. In other words, for most of the past 
40 years, the percentage Christians have been giving has continued to fall as their income has climbed. When we give back to God from the good gifts he has given us, we wrench our economic practices away from bloodthirsty idols that will consume our lives and our children, and we give them to a God who gives back to us life. Matthew 6, 20 through 21. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor, moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Why would anybody do this? Why would anybody put their money in God's kingdom? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. For Michael Rhodes and Robbie Holt, friends of mine, they wrote this remarkable book I'll tell you about in a bit called Practicing the King's Economy. Honoring Jesus and how we work, earn, spend, save, and give. They said there are three ways to give to God's kingdom. Three qualifications of kingdom giving. The kind of giving that takes our heart from bloodthirsty idols and puts them in, 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 the, in the hands of a life-giving Savior. First of all, giving that shapes our hearts by the King is giving that is given to God. When our gifts are given to God, our hearts are shaped by God. We should aim our generosity toward honoring God. For example, how do you give to God? Well, the Bible tells us. It says in Proverbs 19:17, a gift to the poor is a loan to God. Did you know that? When you give to the poor, you are loaning money to God. Now, who would you rather loan money to? Matthew 25, verse 40, tells us that generosity to the least of these is generosity to Jesus. So, this is one way. Malachi tells us that when we bring our tithe to the church, we are giving to God. Number two, giving shapes our hearts by, li by the life of King Jesus when our gifts reflect the heart of King Jesus. Giving must conform to the heart of our king if it's going to form our hearts toward his kingdom. And when we read scripture, we see over and over that giving reflects God's heart when it does two things. It's an investment in the marginalized and it's an investment in mission. The marginalized and mission. Paul, some, some scholars argue that the book of Romans is a fundraising tract. That he sent it ahead to Rome to get them to get money together so that he could take the gospel into Spain. Now think about that. The kind of pinnacle of theology in the Bible is a capital campaign for evangelism. But we know the reason Paul didn't deliver the letter to Rome himself was because first he was taking an offering to the poor in Jerusalem. He delayed evangelizing parts of the earth that had never heard about King Jesus because the poor in Jerusalem needed the, the money that the churches had provided. These are the two parts of God's heart, that if you give to this part of God's heart, God's heart, it will shape your heart. Number three, giving shapes our heart when it follows the way of the cross. 
Giving shapes our heart when it is cross-shaped. And by that I mean two things. It hurts. It lowers your lifestyle. It replaces something you could have done with twiddling your thumbs at home. And number two, when it creates community. Cross-shaped giving costs and creates community. Giving that does this reflects the earth-shattering reality that Jesus suffered the horrors of the cross so that he might create a new family. Cost and community. It costs me something and it creates community. And there's a lot of giving that actually puts distance between the giver and the recipient. And it dehumanizes the recipient. Generosity is one of Jesus' tools for recalibrating our hearts. If we want our hearts to reside in God's kingdom rather than idolatrous temples, we must learn to worship our king through giving. This says to me the church in America should be giving the greatest percentage of its income. If we're going to escape the greatest temple to mammon that has ever been built, we must give more because we're swimming in a far more seductive environment. If giving is God's strategic antidote for the idolatry of mammon, how do we get started? Let's be practical for the last few minutes. How do we get started? I'm going to read you a couple of really cool stories. And I'm going to tell several ways we can get started. Don't feel like you need to do them all. You can't. Pick one. Or if you hate them all, invent one. This is from uh, Michael Rhodes and Robbie Holt's uh, book. They tell these stories. More than 100 years ago, a small group of some of the early Christians in Mizoram, one of the poorest regions in India, made a decision. Every time they cooked anything, they would throw a handful of rice into a separate container to give to the local church. The church would then sell all the rice provided by all of the Christians to provide for their ministers. who would then go and talk to their neighbors about the Lord. This service done in the corner of the kitchen where nobody see, sees anything, do you know how much it raised its first year? $1.50. Today, the, the Bufai Tham, that's what they call it, the practice of giving a handful of rice raises $1.5 million annually. They've been doing this for over 150 years. And they use it to support thousands of missionaries at home and abroad. One of them, you can find like these YouTube videos where they're talking. One of them says, we give the most basic essential thing in our life. When I cook for my family, I am cooking a meal for the Lord every time. There's an Argentinian prison named Sexily number 25. Number 25 has the dual, to get to this prison, here's what you got to do. You have to kill at least two people. But this prison not only has that horrendous entrance ticket, it has a thriving church and seminary within it because people became Christians in the prison. And then they started a church. And then they started a seminary because they needed pastors in the prison. 
Now, in Argentina, when you go into this prison, you, your family cannot come to visit you, not allowed, and the government does not give food or clothing. You know what this means happens to the prisoners. Nakedness and starvation. So you know what the church in this prison does? They give one-third of whatever they receive to the church store. Because of all the people in the prison who need clothing. And then they take that clothing and that's, they're, how, they're clothing the prison. They're feeding the prison. We so often think that the more I get, then I'll be able to give. And the rest of the world stands in devastating judgment over us on that issue. The truth is, we can all give. And giving is your only antidote to mammon. It's the antidote. As, did you know that in America, the poorer a Christian is, the higher percentage of their income they give away? Americans who make $10,000 a year or less give on average, Christians who make $10,000 a year or less in America give on average 11.2% of their income. Those who make more than $150,000 give on average 2.7%. And the scale happens all the way down. You know why? Because the more you get, the more mammon has a chance to grab you. Generosity is God's gift to all of us, rich or poor. And participating in God's gift of giving shouldn't be denied to anyone. Now, if giving is a part of God's gift to us, for escaping this idol, how can we, this group of people right here, get started? Now, obviously, let me just say, um, I'm keenly aware that as I talked last week and this week, um, not only is America in the grip of racism, America is in the grip of classism. And too often, the poor are prejudiced against the rich. And too often, the rich or prejudiced against the poor. And so it's so easy right now to judge rich people and think they're not giving. And it could be that there's many rich people that are giving way higher percentages than us. The big thing we need to be doing now is not looking around the room. It's letting this be a mirror into our own hearts. Okay, some ideas. How can we put this into practice? First, I want to talk about cross-shaped giving at home. Some practical ideas. Remember, cross-shaped giving creates community and costs you something. So here's a very practical idea. If there's something right now that you're wanting and you're saving and you're waiting for, could that be a thing you fast from and you give Whatever it was going to cost to God's kingdom. That'll jam a spoke in the wheel. Now, not everybody has to do this. And, not just, and just because you're saving and wanting something doesn't mean an idol's in your life. It's one way of doing it. Find a way to cut back on yourself and to give the cutback to God's kingdom. The things that he prioritizes. Here's another thing. 
Ron Sider, in his monumental book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, he talks about this thing called the graduated tithe. And what he did was he and his family took like 150% of, what's the term for um, the poverty level? Does anybody know? Any economists? Huh? Okay, there's, (laughs) thank you. That's not it. There's a term for it. They take like 150% of that and they add to it their housing cost. And they, anyway, they come up with what they think is a standard of living that they're comfortable with before God and before others. And they give 10% of whatever that value is. So if they come up with, I don't know, just pick a number for you. It could be 80,000, it could be 200,000, whatever you pick. And they say, the money we make up to that point, we're going to give 10% of it. And every $1,000 we make above it, we're going to give an extra 5%. So if it's $50,000, when they make their 51st thousandth dollar of the year, they give 15% of that thousandth dollar. They give $150 of that instead of 10. And at 52,000, they give 20% of that extra thousandth dollar. And at 53, they give 30% of that extra. And so what they do is he's figured out the system so that the more he makes, the more he gives. You don't have to do this, but what if you did? What if you sat down and said, what is enough? And once we get, we're going to honor God with a tithe up to there. And once we get there, we're going to give more. And eventually, we'll be giving away 100% of those dollars that we make at a certain point in time. This is one way to do it. This is becoming quite popular. It's called the lifestyle cap. And in the explosion of wealth in America, there's this kind of fascinating subculture of Americans that are doing this. They're saying, here's where we'll live. Here's where we feel. And and beyond that, we want to be generous and we're going to give even more. Now, you don't have to do any of these things I've suggested. Let Let me give and come up with your own ideas. Like, how are you going to be generous in creative, fun ways? What what could be our version of throwing rice into a bag? And bring it, please don't throw rice into a bag and bring it to me to commoditize. And then, uh, no, no, I'll give it back to you. What about our church? How, how can a church put some of these ideas into practice? A couple of things I want to suggest. One group of churches I know of got together and invented this thing called the Advent Conspiracy. They were, they were shocked at how much money people spend at Christmas. And so this whole group of churches in this particular town, six churches got together and they invented this thing called Advent Conspiracy. And they called their churches to, at Christmas and throughout Advent, worship fully, spend less, give more. They called their members to do that. Fully worship, spend less, and give more. This has now become a global movement of churches, churches that choose to spend less on themselves at Christmas and give more to the poor. What if those of you who have children, however much you spend on your children, you just decided to pretend you had one more child and that much you spent on that one more child and you found a way to give it away? 
What if you sat down with your children and you said, if you've got children, we're gonna, or if you've got friends that you give gifts to, and you diminish what you're going to give them, and you tell them, what, I, I, I was going to spend you know, $3.74 on you. But I've decided to take 74 of those cents, and look what I gave to this other person. What if, what if we could get together and figure out ways to do this together? Because you see, idols flourish in secrecy. Another way that we as a church can figure this out is what if our small groups started adopting projects that cost us money together? And we figured out a way. Our small groups are um, socioeconomically diverse, and this gets kind of tricky. But what if we, we became a little more open about how much we make and how much we give? My hunch is that if we don't start doing that, we will not escape the idolatry of mammon. One of the things that churches are beginning to do is they're beginning to coach people in developing economic accountability. So what if you found somebody, even if they're not somebody in your small group or your church, but could you give somebody your books and say, am I deceived? Like, haven't we learned from pornography that it's absolutely critical to enter into accountability relationships to escape it? Why is it, you think, that we are so resistant to talking about our money? Why would we be so insulted for somebody to walk up and say, how much do you make? How much do you give? I mean, it's almost laughable to even say those words. Because people swimming in the toxins we swim in. Here's the thing. Idols do two things. They blind you. And when somebody exposes them, you will assault that person. Idols blind, and they are violent. And the violence of our response when it comes to our economic lives, perhaps it's in proportion to the grip of mammon on our lives. Rich or poor? Middle class? Lower class? Mid-lower class? Wherever you want to go. All right, um, I think that, let, let, let me say a couple of kind of final disclaimers, then we're going to break up into groups. All the stories I've shared, they, they, they happened because the churches I just told you about decided to find wise ways of developing economic transparency. Um, I think that what we need to do as a church, I think that what we need to do tonight and in the future, we, sometime this week, I would encourage you to spend a few minutes in silence and ask Jesus, where can I begin? Look, I'm not doing all these things I mentioned. I, studying for this has been hellish. Janelle and I are... We, we just engaged with somebody to do some serious remodel on our house and we're asking each other, Let's look at this. Are we calibrating this right? And we might be. We shouldn't be afraid of asking Jesus. He loves us. I encourage you, spend some time saying, Jesus, where can I begin? And pay attention to what's happening in your heart and what you hear from the Lord. And ask Jesus to replace the hidden greed of your life with the abundant joy of his generosity. Think about who else in your Christian community you can begin to talk with. 
who can help you think through these issues. And within the next couple of weeks, will you find one practice that you can start doing? I mean, Jamma spoke in the wheel. 